Part 2. The Sea Cook. Chapter 7. I Go to Bristol. It was longer than the squire imagined ere we were ready for the sea, and none of our first plans, not even Dr. Livesley's, of keeping me beside him, could be carried out as we intended. The doctor had to go to London for a physician to take charge of his practice. The squire was hard at work at Bristol, and I lived on the hall under the charge of old Redruth, the gamekeeper, almost a prisoner, but full of sea dreams and the most charming anticipations of strange islands and adventures. I brooded by the hour together over the map, all the details of which I well remembered, sitting by the fire in the housekeeper's room. I approached that island in my fancy from every possible direction. I explored every acre of its surface. I climbed a thousand times to that tall hill they call the spyglass, and from the top enjoyed the most wonderful changing prospects. Sometimes the isle was thick with savages with whom we fought, sometimes full of dangerous animals that hunted us. But in all my fancies, Nothing occurred to me so strange and tragic as our actual adventures. So the weeks passed on, till one fine day there came a letter addressed to Dr. Livesley with this addition, to be open, in case of his absence, by Tom Redruth or young Hawkins. Obeying this order, we found, or rather I found, for the gamekeeper was a poor hand at reading anything but print, the following most important news. Old Anchor Inn, Bristol, March 1st. Dear Livesley, as I do not know whether you are at the hall or still in London, I send this in double to both places. The ship is bought and fitted. She lies at the anchor, ready for sea. You never imagined a sweeter schooner. A child might sail her. Two hundred tons. The name? Hispaniola. I got her through my old friend Blandly, who has proven himself throughout the most surprising trump. The admiral fellow literally slaved at my interest, and so I may say did everyone in Bristol. As soon as they got wind of the port we sailed for—treasure, I mean. Redruth, said I, interrupting the letter. Dr. Livesley will not like that. The squire has been talking, after all. Well, who's a better right, growled the gameskeeper. A pretty rum go if a squiring talk for Dr. Livesley, I should think. And after that I gave up all attempts at commentary and read straight on. Blandly himself found the Hispaniola, and the most admirable management got for her the merest trifle. Tis a class of men in Bristol, monstrously prejudiced against Blandly. They go the length of declaring that this honest creature would do anything for money, that the Hispaniola belonged to him, and that he sold it to me absurdly high, the most transparent calamities. None of them dare, however, deny the merits of the ship. So far there was not a hitch. The workpeople, to be sure, riggers and what not, were most annoyingly slow. But time cured that. It was the crew that troubled me. I wished a round of score men, in case natives, buccaneers, or the odious French, 
and I had the worry of the deuce itself to find so much as half a dozen, till the most remarkable stroke of fortune brought me the very man I required. I was standing on the dock, when by the merest accident I fell in talk with him. I found he was an old sailor, kept a public house, knew all the seafaring men in Bristol, had lost his health ashore, and wanted a good berth as to cook and get to sea again. He had hobbled down there that morning, he said, to get the smell of the salt. I was monstrously touched, so you would have been, and out of pure pity I engaged him on the spot to be the ship's cook. Long John Silver, he is called, and he has lost a leg, but that I regarded as a recommendation since he lost it in his country's service under the immortal hawk. He has no pension, Lively. Imagine the abominable age we live in. Well, sir, I thought I had only found a cook. But it was a crew I had discovered. Between Silver and myself, we got together in a few days a company of the toughest old salts imaginable. Not pretty to look at, but fellows by their faces of the most indomitable spirit. I declare we could fight a frigate. Long John even got rid of two out of the six of seven I had already engaged. He showed me in a moment that they were just the sort of freshwater swabs we had to fear an adventure of importance. I am in the most magnificent health and spirits, eating like a bull, sleeping like a tree, yet I shall not enjoy a moment until I hear my old tarpaulins trampling the ground of Capstan. Seaward ho! Hang the treasure! It's glory of the sea that has turned my head, so now livesly come post. Do not lose an hour if you respect me. Let young Hawkins go at once to see his mother, with Redruth for a guard, and then both of them come full speed to Bristol. John Trelawney. Postscript. I did not tell you that Blandley, who, by the way, is to send consort after us if we don't turn up by the end of August, had found an admirable fellow for sailing master. A stiff man, which I regret, but in all other respects a treasure. Long John Silver unearthed a very competent man for a mate by the name of Arrow. I have a boatswain with pipes. Lively, so things shall go a man-of-war fashion aboard the good ship, Hispaniola. I forgot to tell you that Silver is a man of substance. I know my own knowledge that he has a banker's account, which has never been overdrawn. He leaves his wife to manage the inn, and she is a woman of color. A pair of old bachelors like you and I should be excused for guessing that that is the wife, quite as much as the health that sends him back to roving. P.P.S. Hawkins may stay one night with his mother. You can fancy the excitement to which the letter put me. I was half beside myself with glee, and if I ever despised a man, it was old Tom Redruth, who could do nothing but grumble and lament. Any of the other gamekeepers would gladly have changed places with him, but such was not the squire's pleasure, and the squire's pleasure was like the law among them all. Nobody but old Redruth would have dared so much as even to grumble. The next morning he and I set out on foot for the Admiral Benbow, and there I found my mother in good health and spirits. The captain, who had been so long the cause of much discomfort, was gone, where the wicked ceased from troubling. The squire had had everything repaired, and the public rooms, and the sign repainted, and had added some furniture and, above all, beautiful armchair for mother in the bar. He had found her a boy as an apprentice, so she did not want for help while I was gone. 
it was on seeing that boy that I understood, for the first time, my situation. I had thought up at that moment of the adventures before me, not at all of the home I was leaving, and now, at the sight of this clumsy stranger, who was to stay here in my place besides my mother, I had my first attack of tears, I am afraid. I led that boy a dog's life, for he was new to the work, and I had a hundred opportunities of setting him right and putting him down, and I was not slow to profit by them. The night passed, and the next day after dinner, Redruth and I were afoot again and on the road. I said goodbye to Mother, and the cove for which I had lived since I was born, and the dear old Admiral Benbow, since he was repainted, no longer quite so dear. One of my last thoughts was of the captain, who had often strode along the beach with his cocked hat and his saber-cut cheek and his old brass telescope. The next moment we turned the corner and my home was out of sight. The mail picked us up at dusk. The mail picked us up about dusk and the Royal George on the heath. I was wedged between Redruth and a stout old gentleman. In spite of swift motion and the cold night air, I must have dozed a great deal from the very first, and then slept like a log up and down the dale through stage after stage, for when I was awakened at last it was by a punch in the ribs. I opened my eyes to find we were standing still before the large building in the city, and the day that had already broken and a long time ago. "'Where are we?' I asked." Bristol, said Tom. Get down. Mr. Trelawney had taken up residence at an inn, far down to the docks, and superintend the way to work upon the schooner. Tither we had now to walk, and our way, to my great delight, lay along the quays beside the great multitude of ships, and all sizes of rigs and nations. In one, sailors were singing at their work. Another, there were men aloft, high over my head, hanging to threads that seemed no thicker than a spider's. Though I have lived ashore all my life, I seemed never to have been near the sea till then. The smell of tar and salt was something new. I saw the most wonderful figureheads that had all been far over the ocean. I saw, besides many old sailors with rings in their ears, and whiskered and curled ringlets and tarry pigtails and their swagging, clumsy sleewalk, and if I had seen many kings and archbishops, I could have not been more delighted." and I was going to see myself, to see in a schooner with a piping boatswain and pigtailed singing seamen to sea, bound for an unknown island to seek buried treasure. But all the while in this delightful dream, we came suddenly in front of a large inn and met Squire Trelawney, all dressed out like a sea officer in stout blue cloth, coming out of the door with a smile on his face and a captain's imitation of a sailor's walk. "'Here you are!' he cried. "'The doctor came in last night from London. Bravo! The ship's company is complete.' "'Oh, sir!' I cried. "'When do we sail?' "'Sail?' says he. "'We sail tomorrow!'